Well, good morning, friends. It is uh, good to be with you guys on kind of a dark, dreary day. I was asking somebody even before this service, is this rain? Is this snow? Is this hail? Is this sleet? They just said yes. <laughs> All right, great. But did, have you noticed the green that is popping up everywhere? Oh, it's wonderful. People in California haven't seen green since they were like coloring with crayons in preschool. So don't take green for granted, especially when it's on the ground. Great to be with you guys this morning. I haven't seen many of you since Easter. Uh, so I haven't been able to tell you just how proud of you I am. Uh, thank you for an amazing Easter week. As an entire church, I think you guys did an incredible job of welcoming people, inviting people, encouraging people, especially on Easter Sunday. What a great day for this church, for this community. I think you all powerfully attested to the power, to the supremacy, to the kindness of our resurrected King. And I'm just so glad that you were a part of that day. So if you're joining us uh, for the first time since that day or the first time in a long time, welcome back. Uh, great to have you. I hope that you are really blessed and challenged, uh, befriended, embraced, encouraged. All the different words I could throw out there uh, by this community. It's an amazing community of people. If you are visiting, we got some visitor cards in your bulletin. Uh, on the other side of that, uh, for our regular members or anyone for that matter, if you have any prayer requests, make sure you take some time, fill those out. We take those very seriously as a staff. We pray over those on Mondays together. Uh, we're going to try to help you in any way that we can through the things that are going on in your life. So fill one of those sides out for us. That'd be greatly appreciated. If not, if you don't need these, this card for any reason, if you'd help us just recycle them in the back, throw them in the basket or on the floor, or give them to Alder Ryan uh, as you leave this place. Uh, but we'd love to just be good stewards and recycle these for the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, thanks to Nathan, greatest youth minister in the galaxy is my title for him. Uh, he filled in for me last week. I love that guy, and it was, uh, it was great to hear his words, and I know you were strengthened and encouraged by that, that text, that chapter. I was in Northern California performing a wedding for a former student of mine in Willits, Willits, California. Has anybody ever heard of Willits? There's a reason only two of you raised your hands. Everybody else, you're not missing out on anything, I promise, but uh, it was a great trip. It was fun and exciting, uh, as fun as exciting as Willits, California can get, uh, but I'm so glad to be back with you guys. We're currently in a series entitled The Story, and it's a, it's a book and a resource that takes certain excerpts straight from the Scriptures. And uh, for our reading, it's the NIV version of the Scriptures. And what it does is it puts them in chronological order for us. And that helps us, hopefully, to do one of two things. Helpfully, hopefully, it's helping us make it through the entire biblical narrative. Do you realize you're only five weeks away, if you've been reading with us, from making it through the entire Old Testament? Chances are you haven't done that before, so well done. But not only are we making it through, hopefully we're making sense of the entire biblical narrative. If you haven't already, stop by the Welcome Center on your way out. Grab a copy of this. It's our gift to you. We want you to be reading right alongside of us. We want you to be on the same page, literally. This is an amazing story. A few days ago, we posted something on our Digging Deeper section. Uh, let me just mention this real fast. It's a pretty neat resource. If you go on our website, there's an image just like this one with the crowns. Click on that, and underneath it, you'll see a couple of different options for you. Some children's ministry resources, some family resources. There's also something called Scripture References, I believe. If you click on that, it will show you how all the chapters we've been reading perfectly align with the different books of the Bible. So if you look at First and Second Chronicles, you have no idea where that falls in place. Go ahead and check that out. It'll show you. It's chapter 14 and 15. If you have no idea what you do with Lamentations, don't worry, that's coming up in chapter 17. So if any chapter, if any conflict, if any character really struck a chord with you over the last couple of months, go on that Digging Deeper website. I think you'll find some great resources. Uh, my hope for you is that as we're going through this series, you're starting to see something, multiple somethings. But really, I'm, ho I'm hoping that you're starting to see that although stories down here on the lower level, right, the kind of the stories of humanity, our stories, although at times those stories seem kind of meaningless, pointless, plotless, 
Nothing could be further from the truth. God takes each and every one of these stories, the stories that we're a part of, the stories that we read, he takes every one of those stories and he uses them to tell a much larger story, a much greater story, the story of Jesus. So your story and every other story before you and every other story after you will all point to the love and the life of Jesus Christ. Hoping that you're starting to see that in our series. I'm excited for the next couple of chapters and the next couple of weeks. Let's pray about those chapters before we dive into them. God, we know that in the beginning, you took that which was formless and empty and just kind of dirt, and you breathed your spirit into it, and you made something incredible. And so we just pray for that same spirit to come now, for that same breath to just blow through this place even now. Take all of us, God, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been through, what we're going through right now, where we are in life, God, breathe your powerful, life-giving spirit into this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, chapter 16. I think chapter 16 is best uh, described by using one word, and that word is warnings. Warnings. Warnings are everywhere, aren't they? From food labels to street signs, from mattress tags to car dashboards, even McDonald's coffee cups has a warning on it. But we're constantly told, aren't we, in one way or another, in one form or fashion, that we should not do certain things. Or we're warned about the negative consequences that will come if we fail to comply with the warnings. But how many of us actually pay attention to those warnings? How many of us truly heed those warnings? Let's be honest. Take Q-tips for an example. How many of you use Q-tips? That's a dangerous question, is it not, to ask in this setting. Hopefully you all raised your hand, even if you were lying. How many of you take that Q-tip, stick it in your ear as far as it'll go, twist it around and find little goodies? How many of you do that? Okay, you do that. Okay, I guarantee you, though, that if that describes you, you're also breaking the rule. You're not heeding the warning. Because did you know on every box of Q-tips, there is that warning. Do not do that. Do not insert this into your ear. You're supposed to just rub it around the outside of your ear, which does a whole lot of nothing. But you've been warned. No one worries about warnings. Think about those new medication commercials that are on TV. Half of the time, the narrator lists all the negative consequences that will go along with taking this product. Side effects may include dizziness, dry mouth, bleeding, headache, soreness, loss of appetite, loss of hair, loss of a limb, loss of sanity, quite possibly loss of your life. But call now for your free sample. And people do. You have. We do not care or worry much about warnings, do we? And I guess I can see why, I understand why, there are a lot of them out there. And plus, there are a lot of them that are just downright idiotic. Here are a few of my favorites. On a folding stroller, remove child before folding. You see, some of your parents didn't have this warning, and that explains a lot about why you are the way that you are. On a label for a chainsaw, do not hold chainsaw on the wrong end. You need only do that once. On a package of baby wipes, Yes and no. <laughs> kind of like the chainsaw, you need only do that once. On a label for an electric razor for men, never use while sleeping. Although I really wish that I could, man. Wouldn't that be nice? Just kind of wake up. That was a nice fresh shave. A label from a dry cleaner, do not swallow this hanger. Now, that, that's a good warning, but I'm kind of creeped out by the picture a guy with a hanger in his neck, and if you look closely, there's a smile on his face. That's just odd. Warnings are everywhere. But I actually think that Starbucks should put this 
warning on, on their coffee cups. Warning, you could have had the same flavor for a fraction of the price by sticking a brown crayon in hot water. <laughs> warning, Ryan, warning. You've been warned. You see, warnings are everywhere, but they're rather worthless. Well, that's true for some, but not all. Some warnings are actually incredibly worthwhile. And some warnings should be taken with the utmost seriousness. And that kind of leads us now into chapters 16 through 21 of our story. You see, since the fall of Adam and Eve back in the garden, and even back in the garden itself, God has been warning his people. He's been warning them about what will happen if they don't follow him and make him their first priority. He's been warning them about the decay and the death that will come if they don't live within his intended design. Reminds me of the time my dad got this cast iron dragon humidifier for our wood burning stuff. Anybody ever seen one of these things? You fill the dragon with hot water, get a good fire going, and the dragon exhales steam out of its nostrils. I grew up in the hills. This was kind of cool for kids in the hills. Well, I was fascinated by this dragon, so I kept getting closer to it. And every time my dad would say, Be careful, son, that's hot. Be careful, that's hot. Well, of course, I didn't pay much attention to my dad. So I reached out my hand into the steam. Well, I got burned badly. I told you that was hot, son, my dad said in frustration. And I yelled out, well, well, you didn't tell me it was that hot. <laughs> Warnings are worthless, aren't they? At least most of us view them as such, but we're not alone if we tend to do that. Think back a few weeks ago to King Solomon. He allowed his 700 wives, yes, seven with two zeros behind it, wives, he allowed all of those women to turn his heart away from God. Because of these women, our king, the king of God's people, ended up worshiping what they called detestable gods. These gods that used to delight in child sacrifice and self-harm. And so the one true God, a God who would never delight in those kind of things, he was so angry with Solomon for doing all this. Not only did he do all that, but, but he did it after being warned innumerable times not to do it. And so after all the warnings, God said, I'm sorry, Solomon, but I've got to punish you for this. And that punishment took on a lot of different forms. I mean, the headache of 700 mother-in-laws was probably pain and punishment enough. But that punishment actually manifested itself in a different way. God primarily punished Solomon by splitting the kingdom out from underneath him. God's people ended up being cracked in two because of Solomon. This group that started so strong, so well with Abraham now because of Solomon was torn into two. So a king named Jeroboam takes over the northern part, which is ten tribes, a majority of God's people. We refer to that part as the kingdom of Israel. And a man named Rehoboam, the guy we briefly talked about on Easter together, he took over the southern part, only two tribes, and we call that tribe Judah. It was a smaller nation, and it remained closer to God for a little while, as well as closer to the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. But both of these groups struggled to follow God. They at one point were so close to God. They were one unified and united group serving God. And now they're two different groups at odds with God and with each other. In fact, we read that 39 kings rule over these two different nations. 39. Well, 34 of them, the text says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, for you math nerds out there, Nathan, that is 13, that is only 87%. 87% did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Only 13 followed his ways. 87% of the kings 
And I don't know about you, but 13% just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't cut it. Even if you do go to school at CU Boulder, 13% is just not going to cut it. See, I can't help but think that God must feel a lot like a dentist. Why don't we listen to our dentist? I don't understand this. We listen to our doctors, right? They tell us to change this, try that, start taking this. Done, doc. What else do you need me to do? But your dentist? I mean, really, really, dentist. Floss every day? (laughs) Stop drinking coffee? Bring my toothbrush to work and brush during my lunch hour? Are you serious? I know you've gone to tooth school for half of your existence, but I know better than you when it comes to teeth. We just don't listen to our dentist, do we? And I wonder if God feels that same way. Because that's the spirit that we see here in chapter 16. We read about a man named Hosea. He's the new king of the northern kingdom. And he ends up being the straw that breaks the camel's back. Or better yet, he's the head of state that breaks the creator's back. As we learn from this reading, Hosea was a traitor. He promised to be friends with and to align himself with the king of Assyria. He said, yes, my army is your army, king of Assyria. But then he went behind that king's back and befriended Egypt and promised the same thing to Egypt. And if you know anything about Assyrian kings, which I know you all do, the one thing you just don't do is go behind their back. The one thing you don't do with an Assyrian king is befriend Egypt. So after 700 years in the promised land, God is now forced to punish the land and to punish the people in it. And on page 220 of our storybook, 2 Kings 17, we read this. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam, They did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his very presence. As he had warned through all of his servants, the prophets, so the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. The land they were once promised, the abundance they once enjoyed, the blessing and the favor they once received, taken, ripped away from them and now given to another. And we don't have to look very far to see why. Hang with me here as I read the description in 2 Kings 17. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced to them. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places and altars in all the towns. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols. The Lord said, don't do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, he said. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves in an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts. They worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves into the evil, which was all evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it aroused his anger. From Adam to Abraham, even to King Amnon or Ahash or all the different guys that we read about, Ahab. Don't do that, God says. Don't touch that, God says. Don't worship that, God says. But the people would not listen. 
They just had to taste the fruit. They just had to covet what others had. They just had to marry pagan women. They just had to stick that darn Q-tip in their ear. They just had to reach into that dragon's breath and steam. They just had to touch it. And I can't help but think that the entire time God was thinking, I told you that was going to be hot. I told you that was going to be hot. And boy, was it. And boy, did the people get burned. From conquerors to captives. From enjoying the promises of God to experiencing the punishment of God. From ignoring the warnings of God to falling under the wrath of God. And here's where we need to be honest and we need to spend some time together. Because here's where we get into some pretty difficult conversations and have to ad address some pretty serious roadblocks that people have. As it pertains to faith in God or faith in Jesus, a lot of people ask, how can a loving God get so angry? Why would he send pain and punishment on his people? Does he send it today? And if so, what does it look like? What are we to make of these chapters in light of the cross? And what does the mercy ministry of Jesus do for us now when it pertains to the wrath of God? I want to wrestle with this concept. It's called the wrath of God. You've probably heard about it, read about it. It's a tough thing. It's something that I want to deal with head on. I don't want to try to avoid this. And so today we're going to spend a little bit of time, but next week I really want to encourage you to come back. We're going to spend some time in, in some, some difficult passages, but I think that make God the biggest, best God you've ever heard of. He's able to use pain and evil for good. Come back and join us for next week. But let's dive into a couple of these questions this morning. A lot of people have come to believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of pain. He's a God of punishment. He's a God of strict penalties, right? You read these stories. It could be the cleansing of these foreign nations. Kill everyone. It could be the angry tirade that we see God go into at the flood or even Sodom and Gomorrah. It could be the exile that we read about here in chapters 16 and 17. But a lot of people will, and for good reason, say that a loving God would never do that. A loving God would never do the things that we read about here in the Old Testament. A loving God would never hurt, he would never harm, he would never damage, he would never destroy. Well, I think we can offer some answers, some rebuttals to those objections. See, based on the language, the symbolism that we've seen throughout this storybook, God loves creation. And above all of it, he loves humanity. Humanity stands at the apex of creation. We're all incredibly important to God. And so he uses words like creator, husband, friend, and father to describe his relationship to us. Those are terms of endearment, terms of intimacy. So when people ask, why is God so upset in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, he's not. Go read the Old Testament. Man, he was patient back then. But second of all, wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you get a little angry too? If the stuff you created all broke, if the food you grew all went bad, if your wife cheated on you, if your kids disobeyed you, if your friends turned on you, I think you'd be a little upset. In addition to having some great country music material, you have the right to be mad. Add to that point. See, a lot of people think that a loving God, he would never lose his temper. A loving God would never punish or harm others. A loving God would never express his frustration or his wrath. Really? Are you sure? An apathetic God would never do those things. A distant, disengaged, disinterested God would never do those things. A God who doesn't care at all about you would never do those things because a God like that would never do anything. He just stands with hands crossed arms crossed. He stands at a distance and says, I don't care. Do whatever you want. But you see a loving God. 
A loving God would be so involved, so interested, so invested. He would have to react. He would want to respond to the destruction of his creation, the disloyalty of his bride, the disobedience of his kids. He would more than want to get angry and and upset with that. He would be right to do so. Think about it. A loving father wouldn't just sit back and allow his children to just wallop on each other. Maybe at times, he's like, just fight it out. But overall, you wouldn't let your kids just beat each other down. So a loving father would come in and put an end to the violence. A loving God would come in and put an end to the abuse and the mistreatment. He might even have to use a little force. He might even have to raise his voice. He might even have to cause a little pain to put a stop to things. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be a loving dad. He'd be a lazy dad. See, if a dad doesn't rip you out of harm's way, if a dad doesn't discipline you and show you the severity of your choices, if a dad doesn't show you the consequences of your poor decisions, if a dad doesn't do any of that, if a dad doesn't show you tough love, he actually doesn't love. Wrath and love are actually one and the same because one goes with the other. They're not diametrically opposed in any way. The most purest form of wrath, the form we see in God, is actually an expression of love. He cares too much to let you do that. He will not let you touch that dragon's breath again and again and again. He cares about your earlobe. He doesn't want you to stick a Q-tip in it. He cares. And that's why he Loving Father, God hated the thought of punishing his people. He hated the thought of exile. He hated the thought of sending his people to Assyrian timeout. And he didn't do it quickly. He didn't do it just off the cuff. He did it over the course of so many years. Think about it. First, he speaks to them in the garden. Then he gives them the law, and he raises up judges, and he anoints kings, he appoints prophets, and all are told and told to tell the same thing. Obey his commands. Follow and serve the Lord only. Live the way he wants you to live, or else, or else. And basically the next five chapters of our story are the or else. And the fact is, Just because there's an or else, it doesn't prove that there's not a God. It proves the opposite. It proves that there is a God. It proves otherwise. It proves that God is real. It proves that he cares. It proves that he's present. It proves that he's invested and that he's interested in you. He cares what you do with your life. And what you do with your life now echoes for all of eternity. He's trying to show you that. Yet regretfully, a lot of us are living in the or else, aren't we? Our life kind of feels like a giant or else right now. We disobeyed in one way or another, whether we knew it or not, and now we're kind of living like this dejected existence. We thought God's warnings were worthless, so we just cast them aside. We kept them at arm's length, only to learn, I shouldn't have done that. And a lot of us want to stand up. In fact, a few of you have come to me and Nathan and said, can I talk to the youth group? Because I need to tell these guys, don't do what I've done. Don't live my life. Don't make the mistakes that I've made. You know this feeling? Like, don't go down that road. Listen to the warnings. We all know what the or else feels like, don't we? But what I want to try to show you this morning in our time together is that the Lord's wrath and all of his warnings, A, they're truly expressions of his love, and B, they're actually not expressed for the reasons that you might think. See, we tend to think that God gets angry or jumps off the handle uh, when we break the law or break the rules. No, 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 no. God's wrath comes when we break his heart. God's desire has always been to create this little community that reflects his nature and his character to all the rest of the communities. From the beginning, God has called a certain people out of the world so we can bless and partner with them to go and bless the rest of the world. Since Abraham, God has called these people out. He's called them to look peculiar. 
He's called them to look different. He's called them to live distinctly from all other people so that God somehow, through that group of people, could save all the other people. Since Abraham, God has asked us to live differently. So differently, in fact, that others are drawn to those differences and ultimately drawn into a love relationship with the God who gave the differences. Are you with me? And so I think a way for us to understand these two chapters, a way for us to understand the exile, the punishment of God, maybe a way for us to understand what's happening in America today is this. God disciplines his people for their lack of distinctiveness. God disciplines for our lack of distinctiveness. You could call it disobedience, but it really boils down to distinctiveness. Chapters 16 and 17 teach us there is going to be punishment if you're not peculiar enough. This is a license to be weird. Portland people love this right now. <laughs> Boulder people are like, yes. We knew being weird was awesome. Well, it is awesome. You got to be weird for God. You got to stand out for God. You got to be peculiar and distinct. Look at what Jeremiah 2.5 says. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me? He's talking about the people right now in chapter 16 and 17 that led them to stray so far from me. They worshiped worthless things and became worthless themselves. You've heard you are what you eat? I guess you are what you worship too. What do you typically do with something that's worthless? You trash it. Or you put it on Craigslist and hope some sorry sucker will pay top dollar for it, right? I mean, that's what you do with worthless things. But we understand that worthless things are just that. They're worth nothing. So we discard them. We dispose of them. And that's the beauty of this whole wrath thing. If God really wanted to punish us, if he really wanted to express the fullness of his anger, if he wanted to give us what we deserve, you know what he would do? He'd throw it all away. He would discard it. He'd dispose of it. He'd trash it. But we learn that back in, in the flood, that's not his desire. That's not his heart. He doesn't want to just trash it. He wants to transform it. And he wants to use us to do it. He wants to use us to do it. He wants us to stand out, to stand up, and to stand tall in a world that is broken. He wants us to be different, to illuminate, to saturate, to consecrate, and to permeate this world around us. Remember how Jesus himself said it? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are different. You are distinct from everything else. And if you lose your peculiarity, if you lose your distinctiveness, you're worthless. You're no good. But because of his love for us, because of his love for the entire world, God chooses to discipline his people instead of just discard them. He chooses to punish them instead of purge them. He chooses to show tough love so we might be, do a better job of showing his love. What an amazing God that is. Instead of just saying, forget it. Uh, one world on Craigslist for free. You can have all the people and all the problems with it. Take it. It's yours. Local pickup only. If this ad is still up, it's still for sale. He could do that with the world. He could just get rid of it. But he says, I love, I love you too much to just throw you out. I want to transform you. And it might take a little tough love so you more fully understand my love. We were not created to be worthless, but worthwhile. We were not created to be set in our evil ways. We were created to be set apart. Reminds me of the story. A friend of mine was the first day at first grade for their son. They just moved into the neighborhood. They were running a little bit late, as you know those mornings go, getting ready for school. And he said, son, hurry up, run upstairs and get dressed and meet me down in the van. Hurry, we have only five minutes. So the, the, the dad got the lunches ready, got the car going, and he saw his son run out dressed like this. And the dad said, 
well, that's different. (laughs) But you see, God wants us to be different as well. He wants us to look a little foolish and a little crazy for him. And I think that that distinctiveness, that peculiarity, it should look very similar to what God wanted it to look like back in the Old Testament. What was God so angry about? Why was he punishing them? What did they not do or what did they do that, that received or um, was, was worthy of God's wrath? Right? We read about the Asherah poles and different gods and sacrificing your kids and two golden calves. We're like, what are you talking about? So what is our peculiarity? What makes us distinct? What's God looking for? I'm glad I asked, because here's the answer. When you go back and read the warnings of God, when you read the proclamations of the prophets, it boils down to three things. Who we help, which is an issue of indifference. Who we worship, which is an issue of idolatry. And who we are becoming, which is an issue of impurity. And I want us to take a look at these three things, because I think God is just as serious about these three things today as he was back in the day. So the first is who we help. This is an issue of indifference. One of the most common claims that God made against his people back at this point in the story is that they were more or less apathetic. They were indifferent to the problems of the world. They didn't help other people. They created and supported systems where people got used and abused. They grew rich, fat, and happy at the expense of others. They more or less turned a blind eye to the needs of other people, or worse, they added to the needs and the hurts and the problems of other people. Two passages out of about 2,000 that I could have chosen, but look at Jeremiah 5, 27. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They've become rich and powerful. They've grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the cause of the poor. Another prophet, Ezekiel, says the same thing. The people of the land practice extortion. They commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy, and they mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. The issue here is best summarized with that word. It's a great word. The word is justice. God's people refuse to seek justice for other people. They refuse to stand out for God because they refuse to stand up for others. And God needs us to do both. Those others included orphans, widows, the homeless, the lower class, foreigners, foreigners, if we're not careful, we're going to fall victim to the very same thing. If we're not careful, we're going to do or not do the same thing. We're going to be just as indifferent as everybody else. But God needs you to be peculiar. He needs you to be distinct. He needs you to stand out. And a way to do that is to live for justice. See, church, a huge part of our lives has to revolve around our efforts to bring life to others. A huge part of our life has to be about their life and their experience of it. That's why I am so proud of this church. I'm so proud of the things that we're currently doing to seek justice. Everything from our, our Give One campaign, where every week we ask you to put a dollar in the bin so we can help a family in need right here in our community tomorrow morning. We'd love to do that on behalf of the church. We have Pattern After Jesus, our blanket ministry. They just went through about 10 million blankets, I think, and they got to go buy some more. They're helping single moms know they're loved. Help them stay warm. Our college age goes downtown and serves meals to the homeless through dry bones. We support and partner now with Alternatives Pregnancy Center. We donate every month to a local nonprofit church. I think we're doing a pretty good job when it comes to justice. Well done, but let's keep it going. We cannot stop there. We cannot be satisfied with those things. God needs us to be peculiar. He needs us to stand out. He needs us to be distinct. And we do that by seeking justice. Foster care. 
women's shelters, low-income neighborhoods and schools, the worldwide sex trafficking industry, the AIDS epidemic, refugees, uh, teen pregnancy, dropout rates. Guys, opportunities for justice, opportunities to be weird for God are all around you. I just hope you'll take one. If God has put one of those uh, people groups on your heart, come find us as a staff. We want to partner with you to see a ministry started here to help those groups. And if he hasn't put one of those people groups on your heart, pray that he will. Pray that somebody, some group, will burn deep in your heart. Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to help out anyway on this earth? And Jesus said, "Uh, it's pretty simple. Anyone in need. That's your neighbor. That's who I want you to help. So this week, I want you to wrestle with, who are you helping? How are you seeking justice? How is your life distinct and different based upon this one criteria? Don't be like the people of old. Live distinctly, okay, church, by living for justice. The second issue that God's people had was with who they worshiped. This was an issue of idolatry. And I'm so glad that we don't struggle with this. I'm so glad we don't allow the gods of our age and our culture to become our obsessions. So glad that we don't look to the gods of this world, the gods of sex and stuff and success to influence us. I'm so glad we don't struggle with laying our lives down on their altars or laying the lives of young women and young men on their altars. I'm so glad we don't do that. Oh, wait. We kind of do, don't we? We kind of do. You read that stuff and it seems so foreign. It just seems so crazy. No, it's not. It talks about sacrificing kids a lot in the Old Testament and God was so upset with that. You know how we do that today? You gotta have a certain waist to hip ratio, teenage girls. And if you don't, you're no good to us. We just sacrificed the whole population of teenage women, didn't we? You gotta look a certain way. Men, you gotta achieve certain things. You gotta, you gotta know certain things. And if you don't, well, then you're really no good to us. If you're no good at hobbies, if you're not that great at, at, at extracurricular sports, if you're kind of introverted, then you're no good to us, teenagers. We just sacrificed our kids, didn't we? We're no different, we're no better. And it's scary to think about that. We do these things. We think that the money that we can achieve or the fame that we can achieve or the influence that we can achieve or the nest egg that we can achieve, those things give our life meaning and purpose or those things will somehow save us. We think that, that uh, we got to worship and, and serve these people that, that care nothing about us, these employers that, that could care less about us. We believe that he who dies with the most toys wins. We worship other people and lift them up to this godlike status. We have a show called American Idol. I think Americans struggles with idolatry. America struggles just as much. Look at the amount of time and money and energy that you're spending on certain things. Look at what you think about when you're not really thinking about anything. Look at the priority in your life, both publicly and privately, that God takes prayer takes, worship takes, evangelism takes, missions takes, compares the priority of those things to the priority social media takes, work takes, your hobbies take, your kids' stuff takes, shopping takes, balance them out. You see, it's stuff. We worship stuff. We buy things we can't afford, try to keep up with a family of the Joneses that we've never met, never even seen before. There's success. We spend every waking hour checking emails for someone that asks for everything and doesn't give anything in return. And then we worship sex and More on that here in a minute. But we fall to idolatry. We definitely do. The gods of this age are just like the gods of the old days. They just have different names. It was Asherah and Baal back then. Now it's Cosmo, GQ, HGTV, Peyton Manning, Corporate Ladder, GPA. Those are the names of the gods of this age. 
And if we're not careful, we're going to worship them. We're going to serve them. And we're not going to be any different. We're not going to be peculiar because we bow down to those things because everybody else is bowing down to those things. We've got to combat that. And the way we combat that, go read chapter 16 of the story. Go read Isaiah 6. The way you combat idolatry, the way you stand out and stand against the, the worship of this world is to get the same experience, to have the same experience that Isaiah had. What does it say? He says he saw God over it all. God was on the throne. He said he saw God in it all. His robe filled the temple. He saw that God wanted to cleanse him from it all. He was a man of unclean lips, and he saw that he needed to partner with God to help others through it all. Here I am, send me. The vision of Isaiah 6 is the way that we combat the worship of other things. Let's be different. Let's be distinct. Let's be peculiar. Let's worship God and God alone. Third and finally, then I'll get you out of here, is who we're becoming. This is an issue of impurity. One of the major ways we stand out for God, one of the major ways we are distinct and peculiar is by abstaining from the things that everybody else in this culture just goes along with, especially as it pertains to sex. See, back in the day, the problem that God's people had was sleeping with all their other family members. It was kind of weird, but it was like mother-in-law and aunt and sisters and all these different things. We don't struggle with that same thing today, but we still struggle with impurity, sexual impurity. And mostly it's through porn, right? Porn is just killing us. The other day I heard a radio host say that 65% of Christian men are addicted to pornography. That's a lot, especially for Christian guys. That number seems high, though, until you realize that when there's Christian conferences in certain cities, the adult movies and subscriptions to those things goes way up in those cities every time a Christian conference comes through. And those numbers seem high until you read the cards that many of us filled out on Monday, Thursday, confessing our sins before the cross, and a lot of them had sexual sins on there. See, those numbers aren't that high. It's true. It's our life. Porn is consuming us. It's controlling us. It's abusing our bodies. It's twisting our hearts. But more than anything, it's manipulating our marriages. It's taking apart this this relationship that God needs to be strong for the sake of the world. So church, we have to find a way to be peculiar when it comes to pornography. We We have to stand outside of it. We have to stand against it. We have to believe that the fantasy world of porn is demolishing the real world that we live in. We've got to come to terms with the truth that porn is not creating the pure in heart because the pure in heart will see God. That's the promise that we get there. We have to understand that the desire is good. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. Maybe more than any other, Satan is trying to twist it and manipulate it in your life and in your heart. So maybe support groups, maybe computer software, maybe a covenant that you make with your eyes like Job did. Don't be like the people of old church. I need you. God needs you to live peculiar. He needs you to live distinct. He needs you to live for purity. So chapter 16, it's about two men, really, who represent the two choices that we have available to us. You have King Hosea, who just assimilated into the world that he was a part of. He went along with everything that the culture did. He lived in apathy, idolatry, and impurity. He disregarded God's warnings, and he ultimately became worthless. But then we also read about Hezekiah, a man who represents the other choice that we have, the choice to stand up for God, to stand firm for God, to stand out for God, to withstand every attack that comes against you, a choice to take God's warnings and his discipline serious, a choice to live distinctly, a choice to live with peculiarity. And now, after reading the chapter about two men who made very different choices, the choice is yours. Who will you live like? Hosea, who was impure and had idolatry, and was indifferent, or Hezekiah, who was anything but. 
So you can go ahead and disregard the warning on your dashboard or on that stroller or on the Q-tips. Go ahead. I don't think God's too upset about that. But don't ever disregard his warnings. Don't ever disregard his warnings. For the sake of the world around you, don't ever disregard his warnings. Eternity is in the balance here. Intimacy with God is in the balance here. Abundant life that begins now and goes forever, that's in the balance here. The salvation of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, that's in the balance here. God needs us to be like Jesus, distinct and peculiar from this world for the sake of this world. And so I just pray that we will be the oddest group you ever run into. I pray that all of you come next Sunday with a bunch of Batman suits on. Like, I'm here, Pastor, I'm doing it. Like, well, that's different. I want us to be different. Let's live for justice, live for others. Let's live for purity. Ultimately, let's live for God. Amazing things will happen. Let me pray that over you. God, thank you for who you are, that you give us chance after chance after chance, try after try after try to get this thing right. We're sorry that we just struggled to do it, but would you empower us to do better beginning now? Would we be people, God, that are fully obedient and fully in tune with you, empowered with the resurrection power of Jesus this week to live for justice, to live for purity, and to live for you? We believe, God, that our peculiarity, our distinction from this world is actually for their sake and for this world. So give us a burden, give us a heart to want to partner with you to save and bless this world and help us to realize it happens as we live differently from them. Make it so. Help us to be just a bunch of oddballs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, at the end of the services, starting this week, we're going to have a couple of Stephen ministers down below in the corners. If you want to talk to anybody about this message, pray about the stuff that we uh, just mentioned. Find one of them. They'll be available. Have an amazing week. Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out. We'll see you again soon. God bless.